Latino Stories, Historias Latinas, es un podcast que nace del proyecto de narrativas orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio, con entrevistas en español, inglés, and Spanglish. My guest today is Dr. Jonathan Rosa. Jonathan Rosa is an associate professor at Stanford University. He is the director of Stanford's program in Chicanx, Latinx Studies, and co-director of the Center for Global Ethnography. His research examines the co-naturalization of language and race as a key feature of modern governance. Specifically, he tracks colonially structured interrelations among racial marginalization, linguistic stigmatization, and institutional inequality. Bienvenido a este episodio, Jonathan. Thank you so much. It's good to be here in conversation with you. Jonathan, can you please tell us a bit about yourself? I know that you have done extensive research on Puerto Rican communities in Chicago. Are you from that area? No, I'm I'm not from Chicago. I was actually born in, in Rochester, New York, and I grew up in, in, in Western New York in, in relatively rural environments. Um, and so Chicago in many ways was a, a new experience for me that I think was a part of my central to my, my graduate school training. Uh -huh. But the communities in the city of Chicago sustained me throughout graduate school when University of Chicago presented me with, with all kinds of challenges mm. in terms of some of the work that I, I really wanted to do. So I ended up really trying to connect with and become embedded in a whole range of, of community context in, in Chicago and especially working closely with organizations like the, the Puerto Rican Cultural Center there mm. with which I, I continue to collaborate now. And I also taught high school in Chicago and worked in, in schools throughout the city. So mm. Chicago is very important to me socially and intellectually. And I don't think of those things as, as really separate from one another. Mm. And then teaching in, in different universities and in schools, high schools throughout the city also helped me to just build relationships with lots of different community spaces and, and to gain really an understanding of the history, the really complex histories of, of uh, racialized migration and segregation and labor and inequality in Chicago. And then the role of language as a sign of identity and a, a sign of community across different spaces. So. You know, I mean, I, I'm in love with Chicago in, yes, in so many ways, like but <laughs> I also want to be really careful. Chicagoans are, are very specific about who counts as a, as a mm. Chicagoan. So I don't I, I don't want to claim uh, being from Chicago because, you know, that's a very dicey, a dicey situation. Right. So, you know, I have to clarify my, my, my position here. Are you Puerto Rican? I am Puerto Rican. So my, my father uh, was born in Harlem in New York City, mm -hmm. and he was... Um, one of the first in his family who was born in New York is uh, my grandmother migrated from Puerto Rico, uh, from Rio Piedras in, in Puerto Rico to New York City in the mid 1940s as part of um, a large wave of migration of Puerto Ricans from uh, uh, Puerto Rico to uh, the so-called mainland United States as mm -hmm. part of US industrialization. And so that's on my father's side. On my mother's side, my mother's actually from Toronto, Canada, and she's Irish. And so her family 
um, migrated from Ireland to Newfoundland. And, uh, and so my grandparents were born in Newfoundland and then uh, moved to Toronto. So they were born in Newfoundland when Newfoundland was not incorporated into Canada. So that's mm -hmm. part of the complex Canadian imperial project. So right. I think of myself as having connections to these different sorts of colonial projects in, in complicated ways. And, you know, that's why I've always been interested, for example, in the ways that Puerto Rican nationalist figures like Pedro Jesus Campos, mm -hmm. when he went to Harvard University to study, he participated in Irish independence movements. And I sort of think of my own family's histories of migration as, as part of these bigger stories as well. Right. Uh, Jonathan, did you grow up uh, bilingual? Can you share a little bit about your linguistic background? Sure. So I, I grew up um, listening to, to Spanish, but not being comfortable speaking Spanish. My father would only speak Spanish with um, his mother, with my grandmother. And so I was constantly sort of Spanish was always around us. And my father would sort of use Spanish casually mm -hmm. with us. But I didn't develop comfort speaking Spanish, but I was obsessed with Spanish. And so from very early in elementary school, I saw every opportunity to learn Spanish. And yet when I would try to speak the Spanish that I was learning in school with my father, he would often laugh at me and sort of say, what is this? You know, so the, the varieties of Puerto Rican Spanish that, you know, to and through which he was socialized really differed from the Mexico City standard Spanish mm -hmm. that I was learning in school in Western New York. And so there were lots of funny moments where when I would learn how to write certain words and phrases, you know, in Spanish that I had heard my father speak before, I, it, it was so strange to me, like when he would say to the dog, ven paca, you know, come mm -hmm. here. And when I learned that ven paca was ven para acá, three words, I kind of said, what? That is clearly, clearly one word, at least <laughs> in my imagination. And so I had lots of funny experiences sort of learning Spanish in, in different moments and really come become being confronted with the stigmatization of different varieties of both English and Spanish. So, you know, my mother was from a working class background and my father grew up largely in Puerto Rican and African-American contexts mm -hmm. and their language practices were a reflection of those realities. And so from very early on, when I would use language in school, teachers would correct me and, mm -hmm. and especially not just Spanish, not just Puerto Rican Spanish, which I, internalize the idea that there was something wrong with Puerto Rican Spanish, but also with the varieties of English right. that I to and through which I was socialized. And so I thought that the point of school was to fix my language practices and then by extension for me to fix my family mm. and their language practices. And so I really internalized lots of these sorts of stigmatizing stereotypes and, and ideas about language and you know, this is what I think in, in many ways has piqued my, my interest in these issues moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. So I am one of your many Twitter followers and fans. And one of the things that I most appreciate is using this platform to dialogue about language ideologies and attitudes and the ability to quickly respond to current events. And, and I, whenever something, you know, that has to do with language related, uh, language related, I go to Twitter and I know there's something, you know, happening already in relation to that. Um, so talk to us a, a little bit about your experience as a public intellectual through social media. Sure. So, you know, these kinds of platforms, I think, can function in lots of different ways. And so I hesitate to say, you know, this is this is how 
Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, mm -hmm. you know, this is the role that it plays. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm interested, in fact, in all of the different kind of functions of technologies across context, historical and, and contemporary context. You know, mm -hmm. of course, there were crises associated with the emergence of the radio, of television, of the internet, and now social media platforms. So I try not to, to either romanticize or demonize any of these platforms, but rather to kind of think of them from the perspective of an anthropologist, you know? So yeah, for, for me, Twitter has been a space where lots of interesting dialogue can take place. And in different moments I've been, I've written about, and I've been especially interested in the ways that marginalized populations and minoritized populations have really used these spaces to circulate information and to challenge dominant, to circulate information that isn't, often spotlighted in mainstream media and to challenge dominant representations and dominant sorts of ideologies in mainstream media and mainstream intellectual projects. And so I'm excited for how these platforms can function in, in those ways. Mm -hmm. And I've participated in many of those dialogues. And as I, I mentioned, I've written about so, some of these sorts of activist projects mm -hmm. around social media and how they have become powerful sites for creating counter stories and, and, and counter narratives. I'm also wary of these platforms and the ways that they're spaces of deep surveillance. You know, there's tremendous capital investment that is focused on, that is seeking, you know, people's participation and incentivizing mm -hmm. people's participation and the sharing of their, their ideas and their identities uh, in these spaces. And so, you know, I want to be really careful about the ways that social media can often, can also function as a space for regulating social movements, mm -hmm. regulating ideologies, regulating what we think justice is, or what we think progress is, or something like this. And so mm -hmm. I do worry about the scripting of justice on social media platforms and the idea that, you know, this is a space for us to all come into completely unproblematic agreement about what the world is and, and who we all are and what we should all be doing. And so you know, I'm 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 ex I'm excited about some of the conversations in these spaces, and also wary of them. I mean, I I will say, as a linguistic anthropologist, you know, it is a wellspring of data, <laughs> and so, you know, it's yeah. it's fascinating to me to observe all of the ways that people perform identity and the communicative norms, the linguistic norms, and broader kinds of communicative norms that they that take shape in relation to these performances and enactments of identity and the circulation of, of various kinds of ideologies. So, you know, I'm, 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 I'm interested in these platforms, but, you know, I think it's important for us to bring a critical lens to them as well. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really, am, um, I guess, proud of you and Nelson Flores, your your bestie <laughs> on, <laughs> on how you interact, right? Because, I mean, it does help us. Um, I, I'm a reader of, of, you know, the tweets and I sometimes, but I hesitate kind of what you're, you're um, sharing, right? I, I hesitate to share uh, because I don't know what, um, you know, the backlash, I guess, or all the maybe negative um, uh, attention that a tweet, a tweet might my, my, um might have right, um, and so so yeah. I mean, I I enjoy um, the interaction. I enjoy the sharing of knowledge, um, and how that becomes many times part of um, classrooms classroom discussions, right? And 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 um, with my students. So I 
um, you know, we, we looked at um, hashtags, you know, uh, about what uh, we would find uh, if we did hashtag Latinas, what, what was the images or the the topics or the conversations that were coming up in relation to that or, um, you know, any other. Uh, and so we, we think um, how Twitter or social media or the internet, right, um, sort of produces um, and sometimes reproduces uh, stereotypes, right, and how and what can we do to change that, right, as users of these platforms. Um, so I, I do, I, I just like the opportunities that that uh, we could have with our students when we when we enter into the spaces, you know. Um, so thank you for sharing that. So one of these current events uh, was the Bad Bunny's performance at the Grammys earlier this year. While his performance and presence, uh, whether you like his music or not, was powerful as the first Latino to open the award show singing in Spanish, and with a very Puerto Rican identity and culture to his performance, right? We had the cabezudos and, and other cultural, <laughs> you know, significant. Uh, but one of the epic failures of this event was the captioning of his words, right? And the, there's a picture that has been shared and commented on that shows the captioning as speaking in non-English and singing in non-English. And I know I made this part of my classes or class discussion the next day and had interesting conversations with my students. Uh, so what's your take on this? Um, you know, we, we see it again and again. And, you know, some of my students said, what, why couldn't they just caption it speaking in Spanish? Or why couldn't we just have the actual, you know, uh, lyrics in Spanish or a translation of it? Um, so, you know, what's your take on that? You know, this is we we have opened up a whole kind of you know set of issues and put a whole set of issues on the table that I could I could go on about for we could teach many courses right, around right, right. that this one incident and and all of its implications. So I'll try to be as as succinct as possible. But you know, I I think that there's a lot going on in in that particular situation. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, it's really interesting to observe the the rise of a celebrity like Bad Bunny and to think about the ways that he, to position him in relation to a broader range of Latinx and Latin American popular cultural figures mm -hmm. over time and to kind of observe how in different moments there's been the expectation that in order for a Latin American artist to be legible for a U.S. audience, mm -hmm. they needed to quote unquote cross over and mm -hmm. use English or sort of use a kind of live in la vida, mock Spanish, mm -hmm. sort of, you know, mm -hmm. or junk Spanish kind of thing, or, a, a, you know, a, a kind of, you know, a, a faux Spanish mm -hmm. in, in some way. And so there is something really interesting about a, a deeply vernacular celebrity like Bad Bunny, who is, as you suggest, using the cabezudo, using deeply vernacular right. Puerto Rican. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not even just Puerto Rican in general. It is like distinctive regional mm -hmm. vernacular Puerto Rican practices and Caribbean, broader Caribbean practices that are central to his kind of his uh, personhood mm -hmm. and his persona. And so I think it's interesting to, to observe him as a figure and to, to kind of figure out what's at stake in 
is it's, there's something really interesting about him as this vernacular celebrity figure mm -hmm. who doesn't translate himself, who doesn't cross over mm -hmm. in a straightforward way, or at least doesn't cross over at the level of you know, of language. And so again, he's using vernacular Puerto Rican Spanish and that seems central to his, his persona. Mm -hmm. Now, at the same time, I wanna think, you know, really, really critically about celebrity. I mean, he is a global star, one of the best-selling artists globally mm -hmm. right now, you know, top of the Billboard 200, most streams on Spotify. So this global superstar, and so we could either regard this as his vernacular, distinctively Puerto Rican and Caribbean kind of uh, performance. We could we could regard this as a sign of progress and say, "Wow, this is you know we're experiencing inclusion. We're experiencing a, a fundamentally different moment." You know th that is, that could be one take on this, or we could think about the ways that certain kinds of diversity certain performances of difference get commodified mm -hmm. and that specific what makes something so commodifiable and consumable in a particular way is its vernacular nature and so i think we would be wise to not simply sort of uh, have a, a shallow analysis or a shallow celebration of the embrace of bad bunny but to kind of figure out what's going on i mean i'm interested in how he functions, he's recruited to function as a deeply politicized figure in relation to Puerto Rico's political status, ongoing kind of colonial relations between the US and Puerto Rico, all of the political, economic, environmental instability in Puerto Rico, and how he is positioned as a spokesperson for you know, various kinds of Puerto Rican political movements and political corruption within Puerto Rico as well. And so he's been positioned as this, this spokesperson for these movements. and. You know, I think that there's there's something it's really important to to think about him beyond just an, as a, an individual figure and to kind of figure out a political moment. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of the specific issue of the captioning, well, I want to think again, I want to think about the specific case, but be careful not to exceptionalize it. So on the one hand, I think, you know, the the Grammys broadcast sort of claimed that in this particular kind of moment, what happens during a live performance is that they that that uh, speaking in, in non-english uh you know um uh, is a, a a situation where you know which many people turned into a t-shirt and a parody and that became kind of a meme in, right. in its own right which is fascinating and lots of people sort of uh, have identified with that but that that's the point to me i i you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, that, that CBS claims that during a, a live broadcast, that's their standard kind of mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, captioning practice. And then for the subsequent subsequent broadcast, they, they provided captioning in Spanish. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for me, I would want to think about, yeah, the ways that the United States is, a, you know, a, a society where English hegemony is so powerful, where monolingual hegemony is so powerful. I mean, I always joke with, with many people that when I open my linguistic anthropology courses with students, I sort of say, if you identify as a monolingual English user, we got, or just a monolingual human, we got to figure out what happened to you because <laughs> that's pretty weird. You know, that's a really weird phenomenon. 
And in the United States, we tend to think that's normal. Mm -hmm. But, you know, human history is much longer than the last couple hundred years, it turns out. And so what has happened in these couple hundred years is bizarre in the United States in many ways and a reflection. It's bizarre unless you think about po how power consolidates, right. you know, uh, in, in specific ways and what the linguistic implications of that are and how the, the role of language in these power dynamics. So I think, um, you know, this notion of any, any language other than, you know, this way in which English is made the only language mm -hmm. that is legible in the United States and and you know the the value of any other language has no it's hard to even register so that it only registers as non-english so there's there are two languages globally english and non-english mm -hmm. you know from yeah. many perspectives of the united states and this is why i've written about what i call ideologies of languagelessness these sorts of racialized and classed uh, and colonial ideas about language and and so you know, I do think that there is a way that CBS's approach to captioning is an, an, an enactment of and a reflection of this English language hegemony in the United States. You know, but there's so much more to say about this. We'd want to be careful, again, not to exceptionalize just English language hegemony and, and kind of talk about the ableist nature of linguistic hegemony and captioning and subtitling and how many disabled communities have been demanding more robust captioning and subtitling for decades and decades and decades. And so we want to be careful not just making this about bilingualism mm -hmm. or, you know, ethno-racial minorities, but thinking about how disability co-articulates with these issues. That's one piece. We also want to think about Puerto Rican Spanish in relation to broader varieties of Spanish, Puerto Rican Spanish, Caribbean varieties of Spanish, mm -hmm. coastal Caribbean varieties of Spanish specifically, and frankly, varieties that are so stereotypically associated with Blackness. Mm -hmm. And so views of Puerto Rican Spanish, of Dominican Spanish, of coastal Colombian uh, Spanish, Venezuelan Spanish, you know, are often the, the, the stereotype that these varieties of Spanish are incorrect that people cut off words, you know, lots of different ideas about uh, these specific rise of Spanish are in many ways reflections of, of anti-Blackness and reflections of the colonial, the, the colonial histories and contemporary realities of these contexts. And, you know, so this is in, in my ongoing work, this is part of what fascinates me so much. What do you do with a figure like Bad Bunny, who from many perspectives is white, or is some people call him halal, which is to present in terms of skin color as white, but then to be stereotypically associated with African physical features or black features, mm -hmm. you know, and I'd want to put all of that in quotation marks because you, you can't see me right now, but I'm using my, my quotation marks because I want to be wary of these kind of biological framings mm -hmm. of race. While at the same time, the body is a profound site for the experience of race, but how is language a part of the body? And how is it that Bad Bunny could be regarded as white on one level in terms of his physical appearance while using a variety of Spanish and engaging in aesthetic practices that are stereotypically associated with blackness and, and become enactments of blackness and are, can be stigmatized in relation to the broader stigmatization of blackness? And is he subject to that stigmatization? Is he just enjoying privilege? How, you know, or should we think about him as a figure in relation to other sorts of uh, popular cultural or reggaeton, reggaetoneros who, who have not experienced his level of uh, global embrace? And should we read that as a sign of whiteness? So 
all of these kinds of issues are in play when thinking about that that kind of a subtitling moment. So this is why I would say we need a whole course to deal with <laughs> what, what's going on in that particular kind of incident. And I would be careful not to draw any quick conclusions about it because look, Bad Bunny's not suffering. You know, we're, when we say, so, so I'm more concerned with, for example, the ways that that speaks in non-English, I'm less concerned about, you know, Bad Bunny being captioned, quote unquote, accurately, than I am about the millions of kids in US schools who are designated as English learners, yet who use English very comfortably all day long. And English might be a primary language that they use, and yet something about their English language use still positions them as lacking proficiency. Mm -hmm. And so I, I want us to think about the broader kinds of implications of these language ideologies beyond just a celebrity figure. And so, you know, this is why I want to be I want to be careful about not trying to solve problems through celebrities. I want to think about the broader <laughs> kinds of community realities that a lot of us are, are observing. And yet these debates about celebrity and debates on social media and elsewhere, they can be sites for engaging in, in these kinds of political discussions. So I also don't want to be overly dismissive. So that's my, yeah, that's yeah, my general take. No. And I, you know, you made me think of a, a, a few other things, right? It's, so, so definitely the, the, the dominance, right, of English or hegemony. Uh, and especially as, as uh, opposed to Spanish, which is the second most spoken language in the U.S., um, which should yeah, so <laughs> so that's that. Uh, but also, you mentioned uh, the privilege that um, Bad Bunny might have in terms of um, you know white presenting, but also um, uh, performing blackness in his um, in, in his persona, his music, etc. And and I think of um, you know Tego Calderon, who is a black Puerto Rican, who who never. I guess has um, rose to the level of of what Bud Bunny is, right? Um, so yeah, different. You, just, I don't have an answer. I'm just <laughs> thinking out loud, right? Of all those. Wait, and and Fago mm -hmm. was one of the cabezudos in, right? the, in the right. performance, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken. But I also want to ask other questions there. So is the goal? Should we should we regard you know or should the goal for for be for someone like Dago to be as widely embraced as possible, or, and should every figure be as widely embraced as possible, or perhaps because of Dago's politics, you know that was a sign of a, a distinctive positionality and reality and historical moment that he was navigating in in different ways, and so I I, I guess what I'm saying is I want to I want to caution against equating the the sort of prominence of a celebrity figure with the progress of a social movement mm -hmm. you know and and just sort of say oh because this figure can be the leader in this field then the broader population that we tend or the broader political issue that we associate with that with that figure then those issues and, the, and those broader populations they must be doing better too mm -hmm. in fact i'm worried about in an era of dei the way that individuals can be promoted, in fact, to the highest sorts of most prominent places in, in, in different societies, at the same time that broader populations and political issues are being abandoned right, or you know are being targeted in, mm -hmm. in, in profound ways. But the issue of Spanish that you invoke as, as well, I mean, that's especially striking in the United States, just the profound history of Spanish, of course, as part of broader colonial histories and realities in the US. So 
the ways that Spanish is in throughout Latin America hegemonic and so indigenous languages are under attack mm -hmm. in throughout Latin America and yet in the U.S. context how that coloniality can be reconfigured in ways that make Spanish a profound site of stigmatization and again I worry that in some shallow analysis of, of these situations we sort of say you have your colonial languages and then your indigenous languages and the two are fundamentally separate from each other and you know we have just these two kinds of categories well i'm interested in how in the u.s spanish is made into a target of stigmatization and surveillance so that various people face all kinds of marginalization and and all kinds of exclusion uh, in, in relation to the Spanish language. So this is why the racialization of language is so important in my work, but it requires a really careful analysis of how these dynamics play out in context. And how, I mean, I think we need more conversations about that, right? So I'm, I teach um, Spanish and Latinx studies, and I'm teaching right now a um, Latinx literacy course, uh, you know, focused on growing up bilingual and bicultural. And so we, we talk, I mentioned, right, uh, the racialization of language, and most of my students um, had not heard or thought about that, right? And so it's um, more, more discussions need to be happening in the classroom and, and with our students, especially in a region, so I'm in San Antonio, right, in a, in a region where um, some, sometimes it's easier to think, oh, they just don't want me to speak Spanish or they just look at me funny because I speak Spanish, but it goes beyond the language. Um, and it's harder, I find, here in San Antonio for people to see it as um, racial, you know, a racial um, sort of stigma associated with language. Um, and, and I don't know if it has to do also with the fact that um, most um, Mexican-Americans in this region um, still identify um, or there is less diversity within the Latinx community in this region. Uh, and what, by that I mean we don't have um, a large number of Afro-Latinos here. <clears throat> so. Yeah, so I'm just thinking about no all of these I, all of these dynamics I think are so important and again for me I for it's a matter of trying to make sense of various forms of racialization various racisms plural rather than suggesting that there is only one definition of what right. race and ethnicity are and there's only one reality for how race and, and ethnicity articulate. I think that, you know, racialization and ethnicization are complex processes. And in some moments, language, you know, we often tend to think that race is just a matter of physical appearance. But I, you know, from my perspective, race takes many forms, various forms. We can think about race and the environment and ecologies, the air that we breathe, the infrastructures we navigate, the ways that funding structures of, of different uh, public institutions are organized. I think of those as racialized phenomena that don't, are, that don't present on the body. And yet people are subject to those racial structures in, in profound ways that shape life chances, that shape everyday life. And so if we only think about race in terms of physical appearance, then, you know, on, on, there are certain 
forms of racial vulnerability that, that we can understand in terms of, of physical appearance. Mm -hmm. There are other forms of vulnerability that we'll fundamentally misunderstand. And in fact, we might think that someone isn't vulnerable based on physical appearance when, when they're facing all, all kinds of forms of vulnerability. And so I think of language as a part of that picture. Mm -hmm. And you know, you mentioned the name of your course, which sounds wonderful. So Amacelia Zendaya, mm -hmm. for example, and Bonnie Urcioli and others who have written about growing up bilingual, you know, I think about their profound argument that in the post-civil rights United States, we've witnessed a profound remapping of race and racism from biology onto language and culture. So that in the eugenics era, United States, and in an era of legal racial exclusion, you know, physical appearance could be invoked publicly and as a legitimate grounds for racial exclusion. And in a post-civil rights era, United States, you, you witness and you observe all of these kinds of reconfigurations of racism that don't look like race anymore. So that, you know, you invoke a culture of poverty mm. or you can talk about a so-called culture of poverty or you invoke um, these ideas about language and linguistic inferiority. And uh, many scholars, myself included, have argued that these, these kinds of dynamics are a reflection of how race can take many different shapes depending on the context. And it's very important for us to, to leave open and remain open to the question of how racism is articulating in, in, in a particular context. I mean, uh, the last thing I guess I would say is I just taught a, a course in the winter intro to comparative studies in race and ethnicity. And one of the things we looked at was Japanese colonialism across the 20th century and the ways in which, you know, Japan's imperial projects adapted European colonial, European racism and European eugenics projects to uh, an, an Eastern East Asia context where things like the fingerprint and the structure of the fingerprint became a site of racialization and involved a whole racial order. And so we need to, we need to think about these racial forms of racialization, forms of racial distinction and racial ideologies in context. And I think language is a profound site of, of racialization and we would be well served by, by orienting to it as such. Absolutely, absolutely. Just um, looking at the literacy rates within um, the city of San Antonio, mm. which are high, but also concentrated to areas where there is a high number of Latinx and Afro-Americans um, mm. um, and um, poverty. Right. Um, Absolutely. So, so those, I mean, those are things that we need to think about, right? And so the the it's been a great class, and uh, and I'm learning too, right? That's because this is my first year in San Antonio, so I'm learning too a lot um, about my own community, right? And some of the things that have been, um, you know, redlining the process of redlining within the city and how that has affected and disenfranchised certain communities historically, right? Um, so those are conversations that are happening in the classroom and the, that I'm happy to be um, having with my students. But yeah, thank you for, for that for that comment. Uh, Jonathan, what projects or initiative are you initiatives are you working on this year? Sure, I've, I've been continuing a lot of my community-based teaching and, and research. So I mentioned the the comparative race and ethnic studies course, which involved the collaboration with a, a local high school here in the Bay Area, where we ended up designing curriculum plans for high school ethnic studies courses. The state of California has just 
implemented ethnic studies as a requirement at the high school level statewide at the same time that of course you know right. so-called critical race theory and courses in ap fm studies are under attack throughout the nation so we're really kind of thinking about ways to connect what we're doing at the university to these high school contexts but then i partnered with a, a teacher and uh, or a set of teachers and and high school students who evaluated the curricula that we designed as well. And so I'm really interested in these kinds of experiments and connecting learning across higher education and K through 12. That's very important in my work. And then my ongoing community collaborations. I'll be back in Chicago at the end of the week for the American Educational Research Association annual meeting. And I'm, I'm organizing a community tour of Humboldt Park. Uh, so it's the heart of Chicago's Puerto Rican community and mm -hmm. a, a space where, again, I've been working for a few decades now. And, you know, I have ongoing projects thinking through race and language among Puerto Ricans. And that's really the next book that I want to write, really kind of rethinking and telling a, some different stories about ways that race and language come to be experienced that really ask us to confront the contradictions. What I understand is fundamental contradictions around race, ethnicity, and language, because it seems to me that a lot of people are trying to present race, ethnicity, and language as straightforward equations and definitions that we can all and should all agree upon. And in fact, I think of them as deeply contradictory and as part of these broader colonial entanglements, you know, historically and contemporarily. And so I wanna, I wanna do work that asks us to, to really face those contradictions rather than uh, turning away from them or rather than, than flattening them out and, and trying to, to sort of uh, present the wor a world of 8 billion people as though it fit into four or five racial categories. I mm -hmm. think there's a lot more going on and we owe it to one another to uh, face that complexity. Right, right. Jonathan, gracias por esta conversación. It's great to, to have this dialogue with you and, and I hope uh, we, we have the chance to be in conversation in the future as well. Yes, thank you. Thank you.